The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the miraculous works of your ministry here on earth. We thank you for these mighty deeds that point to the might of your salvation. May we see you and your work clearly today. May we set aside our own expectations, our own sense of what your timing should be, and receive your grace as it comes. Be honored in our midst. Pour out your grace on us, we pray. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Not long ago, uh, an old friend uh, reached out to me by, by text message. His father had recently died, and his family situation was complicated. He was struggling. He didn't really know what he was asking for. He just wanted me to pray because he was no longer sure how to do it himself. You know, it happens to all of us at some point. We hit a spiritual wall that we can't get over. Now, some of us, we run into that wall at full speed, and we come to lying on the ground, dazed and confused. For others, the wall comes into view so slowly that we don't know we've hit it until we're right up against it, and we can't see anything but the texture of the bricks and the mortar between them. Maybe the wall's doubt. Maybe it's disappointment. Maybe it's disillusionment. 
regardless of how it's constructed, we come, we come up against a spiritual wall and we find ourselves saying things like, this is not what I signed up for. I don't know if I can do this anymore. I don't know if I can believe this anymore. At the beginning of Matthew 11, John the Baptist seems to have hit this wall. For years, he'd been living in the wilderness along the banks of the Jordan River, preaching repentance, baptizing those who came to him, and telling them that the Messiah was coming. In Matthew 3, he told the crowds this. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, the someone that he had been waiting for was Jesus. And when John baptized him in the Jordan River, he heard God say that this was his beloved son. From then on, John took a back seat to Jesus. And as Jesus became greater, he became less waiting all the while for Jesus to establish the kingdom with power. But then John was arrested. He had said one too many critical things about those in power. And as John languished in prison, Jesus continued his ministry. But Jesus' ministry wasn't what John had expected. Perhaps he was expecting a, a bit more spirit and fire. Perhaps he had anticipated the overthrow of the Romans and their puppet rulers in Judea. It's hard to say. All we know is that John seems to have hit the wall. And he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Now the words sound innocent enough, but after all that Jesus and John had been through, it's clear that they are saturated with disappointment. It seems to me as if John is saying, are you really the one? Because it doesn't seem like it. Where's the power? Where's the fire? Where is the kingdom you promised? Why am I in prison? Now, Matthew doesn't give us any insight into Jesus' internal reaction to these questions from John's disciples. He doesn't tell us how they made Jesus feel, though surely they caused him sorrow. Matthew simply tells us what Jesus said in reply. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now Jesus' response is straightforward enough on the surface. Look at what I'm doing, he seems to be saying. Look at what I'm doing and keep believing. But there's more to it than this. Much of what Jesus says here comes from Isaiah 35, and it acts almost like a coded message of encouragement to John. So Cotty read Isaiah 35 to us a few moments ago. It's a prophecy that tells of a time when God will redeem his people. And the sign of his redemption will be the healing of the lame, the giving of sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and speech to the mute. These miraculous works of healing, however, they're merely part of the much more profound work of salvation that involves the ultimate redemption of God's people, the establishment of justice, 
and the transformation of all of creation. So as the chapter ends, Isaiah promises, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. In his reply to John's disciples, Jesus seems to be saying to his friend, take heart, I'm not finished. The healings and the miracles, they are signs of something much bigger and far greater. Be patient, don't give up on me. I suspect that John knew Isaiah 35 well enough to remember the specific words of encouragement to the weak and weary that come in verses 3 and 4. Words almost certainly meant for, for men and women like him who've hit the wall. Isaiah says, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. What comforting words those would have been for John. The miracles that Jesus was performing, as incredible as they were, were like glimmers of starlight compared to the blinding brightness of the rising sun. Jesus hadn't abandoned his mission, nor had he failed. It was simply unfolding at a different rate and in a different way than John had anticipated. And Jesus' response to him was to tell him to hold on because salvation was coming. As John's disciples leave the scene, Jesus is left to reflect on the struggle, <clears throat> excuse me, on the struggle that so many of us have between our expectations of God and our experience of God. Between our desire for immediate salvation, perfection, and the reality of God's long-term plan. The transition between verses 6 and 7 in Matthew 11 is pretty quick. But I imagine that Jesus sat there for quite some time thinking about John and pondering this aspect of our human nature. And so he turns to the crowds that have gathered around him and he asks a rhetorical question tied into this tension we so often experience in life because of our expectations. So verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Jesus wants the crowds to reflect on what they were looking for when they went to see John in the wilderness. Was it a weakling blown about by the wind, a royal attendant dressed in luxury? Well, no, of course not. That's ridiculous. They were looking for a prophet, someone who would speak the powerful word of God and tell them the truth about their world. But when they found John, they got more than they bargained for, more than they were willing to take in and to accept. He wasn't exactly what they wanted, and so they didn't know what to do with him. Well, Jesus goes on to explain that John wasn't just any prophet. He was the forerunner of the Messiah, which made him the greatest prophet ever born. As Jesus says in verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater 
than John the Baptist. Well, then Jesus drops a bombshell on the crowds when he tells them, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, this whole sequence and the verses that follow are pretty opaque to us. Jesus is pushing the crowds, trying to help them see that what they found in John is much greater than they, what, what they went looking for, but that they've been blind to this. They're f- so focused on their own expectations that they can't see what God is doing in their midst. He wants them to understand two things. First, that God's salvation is greater than we can imagine. And second, that if we are going to truly receive it, we need to set aside our expectations and attend to Jesus himself. He's telling the crowds that if they will only rip off the blinders of their own misguided expectations and see him for who he is, then they will be greater than John the Baptist ever was because they will have received what John could only proclaim. Well, this all leads Jesus to a second rhetorical question in verse 16, one that challenges the crowds to see just how hobbled they have been by their own expectations. Jesus says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Jesus compares the crowds to naive children with misplaced expectations who try to manipulate the world around them and are surprised when they fail. He goes on to explain more precisely what he means in that particular context. He says in verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So John the Baptist had been rejected on the grounds that he was an ascetic. Jesus had been rejected on the grounds that he was a supposed hedonist. Because John and Jesus had failed to meet expectations and could not be manipulated, they were rejected as unfit to usher in God's kingdom. Now that's human nature. We want what God has to offer, at least what we think God has to offer, but we want it on our terms and according to our timing. We want God to dance for us. We want God to sing for us. But all the while, the truth is he has so much more to give and we have so much more to gain. Well, Jesus ends this strange, indirect, confrontational teaching with a final enigmatic claim that functions as an invitation. He says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Back in verse two, John sent his disciples to see Jesus after hearing about his deeds. He wanted to know if those deeds signified that Jesus was the one he'd been waiting for. And in his reply to the question, Jesus listed his actions, his deeds, pointing John back to Isaiah 35 and the promises that surrounded them, inviting him to see the bigger picture. In the teaching that follows, Jesus extends the same invitation to his audience to see the deeds of Jesus in the context of the promises of God and to put their trust in him. 
Jesus extends the same invitation to us to set aside our narrow, time-bound expectations in order to see Jesus as he truly is and to receive the promises of God in all their fullness. So why are you here this morning? What do you want from God? Some of us want relief from endless anxiety. Others want peace at home. Parents want their children to be happy. Children want their parents to stay healthy. We want security, we want purpose, we want to be fulfilled. And these are all good things that we want. But there's so much more that Jesus offers. Some of you here this morning have probably never taken a good long look at Jesus and considered his invitation to come into the kingdom. I want to urge you to do so by reading any one of the four Gospels. They don't take all that long to read, less time than it, watch, than it takes to watch a football game. My guess is that you've heard a lot about Jesus from other people, but you may never have heard about Jesus from the Bible itself. Pick one up and see what it says. Consider all the deeds of Jesus from his birth all the way to his death and resurrection and see if there's wisdom there. Now, others of you, you have seen Jesus for who he is. You've received the gift of salvation. You've entered into the kingdom, but you've hit a wall. You're experiencing the tension between God's promises and your circumstances. You may be like, the John, you may be like John the Baptist, wondering if you've made the right bet and believed in the real king. Well, life is like this. We believe that when Jesus died and rose and ascended into heaven, he established his kingdom. And yet we're painfully aware of our own suffering and the continued injustice of the world in which we live. We know that we've been saved, but that salvation isn't yet complete. And sometimes, sometimes that tension becomes too much. So what would Jesus say to us? I think first he would say, you're not alone. Even John the Baptist, the greatest of all the prophets, struggled with this tension. And struggle isn't failure. Struggle isn't failure. Doubt and disappointment are part of the life of faith. It's what we do with these that marks the difference between walking away from God and staying to wrestle with God. When John hit the wall, he sent messengers to Jesus to ask for clarification and to beg for some kind of affirmation. He went back to Jesus. We are wise to do the same, to take a deeper look, to ask the really hard questions, to come back to Jesus again and again and again in order to see the power, tenderness, patience, mercy, and eternal nature of his ministry. When we turn back to Jesus, our misplaced expectations, they tend to get exposed. And we see our impatience for what it is. And we learn to rest in him as hard as that can be. What else would Jesus say to us? I think he would speak in much the same way that he spoke to John's disciples. Take note of what you see in the Gospels the healings, the miracles, his death and resurrection. Set those things in the context of the bigger story captured so well in Isaiah 35 
and then wait with hope. As Isaiah says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And then the chapter ends in verse 10 where Isaiah says, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. When John's disciples came back to him in prison to report what Jesus had said, John must have heard these words from Isaiah echoing in his head. And while his circumstances did not change, he would soon be killed. He was assured that justice would be done, sorrow banished, and joy come with victory. The invitation of this passage and the invitation of this Advent season is to take a fresh look at Jesus. He may not always meet your expectations, but he will take care of your deepest needs. And when you hit the wall and you're flat on your back, he will be there to pick you up and to carry you home. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the miraculous deeds of your ministry, for the mighty promises of salvation. As we struggle with our own expectations, with our disappointments, our doubts, our disillusionment, would you draw us back to you? Would you draw us back into the pages of Scripture to see you as you are? And as you do, would you expose our misplaced expectations, our misunderstanding of time? Would you strengthen our weak knees? Would you encourage our wandering hearts? Would you give us hope and trust and faith and joy in you and the promises you have made? May we know the power of your salvation and the hope of the kingdom. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.